0: The facts are as follows. A Mr. Stephen Mortimer Beckworth, 28, a clerk in the Wiltshire and Dorset bank at Salisbury, was living in Wishford. He was married with a child. On the 30th of November, 1887, being home after spending the night at a friend's house, was a mild night with rain and wind blowing, and it was not completely dark. Accompanied by him was his dog, he was riding his bicycle. He had no difficulty seeing the road, nor the stones on it, nor the sheep in the hillside. He also recalled quite clearly seeing an owl flying by. Well, a mile or so along, and his terrier dog ran through the hedge and ran barking up the hill. Well, the man imagined that perhaps he was chasing after a rabbit. He called to the dog, but the dog took no notice, and he ran to a gorse bush and then stopped, paw uplifted, watching it intensely. Well the man watched him for some time and then feeling frustrated with his dog he dismounted from his bicycle. He could see nothing up there himself but the dog was in a state of excitement. It was whimpering and trembling and so he decided he had better take a look at what was causing this behaviour in his dog. The dog would not take his eyes off whatever was up there. Behind the dog now but he could see nothing there. He had no stick, and imagining that perhaps it could be a drunk man in the gorse bush in need of help or a rabbit caught in a trap, he urged his dog inward, but the dog wouldn't move, and eventually it began to howl. This shook his owner, who because of the isolated location and what he says was a mysterious shroud of darkness, he wanted nothing more than to leave the spot, but he couldn't get his dog to leave. Well finally he braved it and he put his two hands inside the gorse bush to try and feel for whatever was in there and it was during this fumbling that he suddenly saw a bright pair of eyes staring back at him and a pale face. He found his voice and he asked who they were and what was wrong and why they were in there. He tried to reassure them that he meant no harm to them. There was no movement at all of the features of the face. It was a very small face about as big as a large wax doll's. It was longish and oval and very pale. He could see its neck, and the neck was no thicker than his wrist. He later said he would have described it as a girl, had it not been for the size of her face and her neck. He says in fact it was neither fish nor flesh nor fowl. And Strap, his dog, had known that from the very beginning. Well, in the man's mind, he called her a foreigner, because he had no other word for it. To him, she was something he could not define. Her face was that of an older girl, a late teenager at least, but her size was under three feet. And she couldn't seem to understand what he said to her. And she said nothing back to him. Her clothing was odd too. It seemed almost like it was made of cobwebs. It was all of this that made him suspect her of being something outside of his experience. Suddenly he heard footsteps and a torch coming up the hill toward him, and it was the local policeman. The man told the policeman immediately that there seemed to be some kind of foul play at hand but didn't know what else to say. The policeman followed the direction the man's head went in, as the man indicated the girl had in his arms, having pulled her out of the gorse. But the policeman couldn't appear to see anything in his arms. In fact, he made a joke, and then walked off back down the hill. Now the man really did know something was wrong. However, he didn't feel he could just leave her there, in the rain, in the darkness. So he took her back home with him. When he got home, his wife was waiting anxiously at the front door, looking out into the darkness, worried that he was so late. When he began to explain what had happened, it became evident that just like the policeman, his wife also couldn't see the girl. In fact, she placed her hand on the handlebars of the bicycle where he had propped up the girl to ride home with her. His wife's arm went straight through the girl. It was as if my wife had drawn a hole clean through the middle of her back. Her hand went through, the skin, the bone, the dress. How, I do not know. He couldn't bring himself to take this invisible creature into the house with him so he put her in the dog kennel. I blame myself for it, myself only, he was later to say. He kept the small child in the kennel for almost six months. She shared the kennel with his other dog. He fed her, though she never ate anything. She spent her time dancing and playing with the two dogs. Then later she would play with his own child, a four-year-old girl. The little girl would never tell him that she was playing with the other strange girl, but it was evident that they were. The four-year-old denied it. She too could see the strange girl, though his wife never did. We might have been spared if, on the night I brought her home, I had told my wife the whole truth. And yet how could I? Is not that an absurdity? But the sequel was no absurdity. Now I come to the tragic part of my story and I wish that I could leave it out, but beyond the full confession I have made to the police and the newspapers, I am to blame. On the 13th of May, she and my daughter disappeared. The search party covered a radius of miles, searching every fold of the hills, every hedgerow. I told my wife, the reverend, and the police about the strange girl I had been harbouring circling about the cage seemed to be the most important business of her life. She was always at it, I shouldn't have called it restlessness so much as busyness. She was most happy when so engaged. She used to sing. Her eyes were bright when she was dancing, with mischief and devilry. I can't avoid that word, though it does not describe what I really mean. She looked wild and outlandish. She was teasing the dog. She did look wicked, there's no mistake able and willing to do wickedly, but I'm sure she never meant to hurt the dog. They were firm friends, though the dog knew very well who the master was. I noticed that she had a kind of pity for us, a kind of contempt perhaps is nearer the mark. Though I should be compelled to express myself in such a clumsy way, I imagine that our need of putting one word after another is due to our habit of thinking in sequence. But if there's no such thing as time in the other world it shouldn't be necessary for them to frame their speech in sentences at all. She contrived to talk with my little girl, who, although she was four years old and a great chatterbox, never attempted to say a single word of her own language, yet communicated with her by the hour together. But I did not know anything of this for a month or more, though it must have begun all at once. I blame myself for it, myself only. I ought of course to have remembered that children are more likely to see fairies than grown-ups. But then why did Florrie keep it a secret? Why didn't she tell her mother or me that she had seen a fairy in the kennel? The child was as open as the day yet she concealed her knowledge from both of us without the least difficulty. Now I come to the tragic part of the story and I wish with all my heart that I could leave it out. But beyond the full confession I've made to my wife, the county police and the newspapers, I feel that I should not shrink from any admission that may be called for me of how much I have been to blame. On the 13th of May, my daughter, the dog and the creature all disappeared. It was a day I remember well, one of wonderful beauty, I'd left all three of them together in the water meadow, little thinking of what was in store for us before many hours passed. The creature had been crowning my daughter with a wreath of flowers. She'd woven marigolds together far more deftly than any of us could have done. I don't doubt now, but she was bewitching my daughter by this curious performance. But fool that I was, I thought nothing of it at the time, and I cycled off to Salisbury, leaving them there. At noon, my poor wife came to me at the bank, distracted with anxiety and fatigue. She'd run most of the way. She gave me to understand. Her news was that Flory, my child, and the dog could not be found anywhere. She said she'd gone to the gate of the meadow to call them in, and not seeing them or getting any answer, she'd gone down to the river at the bottom. Here she found a few picked wild flowers but no other traces of them. There were no footprints in the mud, either of the dog or the child. Having spent the morning with some of the neighbours in a fruitless search, she'd now come to me. My heart was like lead, and shame prevented me from telling her the truth, as I was sure it must be, but my conviction of it clogged all my efforts. Of what avail could it be to inform the police or organize search parties knowing what I knew only too well? However, I did communication with the head office and everything possible was done. We explored a wide circuit of six miles around the field that they disappeared in. Every fold of the hills, every spinney, every hedgerow, it was all thoroughly examined. But that first night of grief had broken down my shame and I told my wife the whole truth in the morning. In the presence of the Reverend and in spite of his absolute incredulity and scorn, the next morning I repeated the same story to the Chief Inspector of Salisbury Police. Well, the details got into the local newspapers by the following Saturday and then I had to face the ordeal of the Chronicles and the other London journals. Most of the newspapers sent representatives down to the village, many of them with their cameras. All of this, all of this hateful notoriety I brought on myself and I did my best to bear it like a contrite, humble Christian. We found no trace of our dear one and never have to this day Brand too, has completely vanished. I have not cared to keep a dog since. Whether my wife believed my account, I cannot be sure. She's never reproached me for my wicked thoughtlessness. That's certain. My pastor, Mr. Walsh, has been so kind as to read this paper and told me on more than one occasion that he could hardly doubt what was written in it. Police made no comments upon it one way or another. My colleagues at the bank, out of respect for my grief and sincere repentance, treated me with a forbearance for which I can never be too grateful. I made notes of the most remarkable characteristics of the being at the time of remarking them, and those notes are still in my possession. The night before they disappeared, I remember that she, the creature, and our dogs Bran and Strap had been having high games in the meadow, which had ended by their all lying together in a heap. The creature's head on Bran's flank, and her arm around Strap's neck in a most loving way. They made quite a picture. I found poor Strap, stiff and staring, the next morning. The creature and Bran still at their games just the same. The creature she actually jumped over Strap and all around him, as if he'd been a lump of earth or a stone. Just some such thing he was to her. She did not seem able to realise that there was the cold body of her friend.